Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Desert and a Dungeon, God's Presence in Our Place. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December the 9th, 2012, the second Sunday in Advent. Two summers ago, my wife and I attended my nephew's wedding in New York. On the drive back to the Newark airport, we took a detour through Drew University, where I had gone to grad school. Many things looked just the same as we circled the campus loop. Much else had changed. After a few minutes, we came to the Chocolate Brown Efficiency Apartment, where we had lived for three years. When we got out of the car, and without any warning, we were both hit with a wave of emotions. I hadn't been to that campus in 26 years, yet there was something powerfully evocative about going back. There's no mistaking the power of place. In the Gospel this week, John is in the Judean desert. In the epistle, Paul is in a Roman dungeon. Neither a desert nor a dungeon is a place that you'd expect to experience the presence of God. I've flown from Europe south over the Sahara Desert. It's a vast expanse of sandy nothingness. A dungeon, by contrast, epitomizes confinement and constriction. Nonetheless, the desert and the dungeon were both places where God spoke and acted. Luke specifies the exact time when the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. He calls it the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which dates his story to about the year 26 AD. Luke also identifies the political context. The word of God came to John the Baptist when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iutria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. After naming Rome's political powers, Luke then identifies Jerusalem's religious establishment. He says the story takes place during the high priesthood of Annas and his successor Caiaphas. These minor details reveal a major theme in the story of Jesus. The word of the Lord through John the Baptist did not originate with the imperial powers of Rome, nor from Israel's religious establishment, even though John's father, Zechariah, was a priest in the Jerusalem temple. It didn't come from someone dressed in fashionable clothes who lived in an expensive palace, said Jesus nor from a business boardroom, university laboratory, ski lodge, or power lunch. No, God's word to all humanity came from a wild and woolly man who lived in the deep of the desert, on the fringes of society rather than its corridors of power, at the periphery rather than at the epicenter. The divine messenger and his message originated in an unlikely place and from an improbable source. 
John would, would have been easy to ignore if you expected or wanted something normal, safe, or traditional. But neither John nor his message was normal by any stretch of the imagination. His message of repentance was what Marcus Borg calls both an invitation and indictment. John might have been part of the apocalyptic Jewish sect of Essenes who opposed the temple in Jerusalem. This much is clear. He was a prophet of radical descent. His detractors said that he had a demon. In the end, he paid the price for faithfulness to his prophetic calling. About six months after John emerged from the desert like some scraggly lunatic and baptized Jesus, he was beheaded at the whim of Herod the Tetrarch. As for the Apostle Paul, in his book, What Paul Meant, the historian Gary Wills describes him as a heroic traveler who logged more than 10,000 miles spreading the good news of God's love. Given the subsequent global expansion of Christianity, Paul remains one of the most influential people in all of history. But in the epistle this week from Philippians, Paul isn't going anywhere at all. He's languishing in jail. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul mentions his chains of the, the chains of his imprisonment five times. In other epistles, he mentions the chains an additional five times. Paul spent significant time in prison. Despite warnings from his companions that Jewish leaders accused him of forsaking the Mosaic law, Paul insisted on going to Jerusalem. He delivered relief aid to the church there that he had collected from churches in Asia and Europe. And sure enough, he was arrested in Jerusalem and then transferred 60 miles northwest by armed guard to the governor Felix at Caesarea. In Caesarea, he languished in prison for two years while Felix vainly hoped for a bribe. When the next governor, Festus, suggested that he ought to be remanded to Jerusalem for trial, Paul invoked his Roman citizenship and appealed his case to Rome. Paul had never been to Rome and had written the believers there that he intended to visit them. Of course, he did make it to Rome, though under very different circumstances. In Rome, he would later write Timothy, he was, quote, chained like a criminal. But Paul wasn't concerned about his confinement. He told the Philippians that the gospel was spreading because of his imprisonment. Indeed, under house arrest at Rome, he was able to meet with friends. It's thought that he composed his four prison epistles during this time, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He learned how the gospel that had started in the religious center of Jerusalem in the east had migrated to the imperial center of Rome in the west. Despite the power of an oppressive place, Paul remained confident. He might be in chains, he wrote to Timothy, but the word of God is not imprisoned. The Bible doesn't say where or how Paul died. But according to tradition, he was beheaded under Nero, 
about three miles outside of Rome on the Ostian Way. In the desert, in a dungeon. Whatever space or place we find ourselves this Advent, God will meet us there. For Mary, the mother of Jesus, a peasant teenager from a working-class neighborhood of carpenters in Nazareth, a village so insignificant that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, in the historian Josephus, or in the Jewish Talmud, her angelic encounter took place in an unknown, ordinary house. In his book, Searching for Home, Craig Barnes, pastor of National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. from 1993 to 2002, uses Dante's Divine Comedy and the Journey Toward Home metaphor to explore the pilgrim motif of discipleship. He reminds us that the truly good news of Jesus is that all of the roads belong to God and that the Savior can use any road to bring us home. Quoting C.S. Lewis, he reminds us that God can even use the wrong roads to take us to the right places. For books this week, I review a title called When I Was a Child, I Read Books. It's a book of essays. The author is Marilyn Robinson. New York, Farrer Strauss Giraud, 2012, 206 pages. I suspect that most readers know Marilyn Robinson from her three novels written across 30 years, Housekeeping in 1981, then 23, 23 years later, Gilead in 2004, which book won the Pulitzer Prize, and then in 2008, the book Home. Many readers, though, might not know that she's also written three works of nonfiction in which she's established a reputation as a publicly Christian public intellectual. She's lectured at numerous universities, including Oxford and Yale, and written pieces for the Paris Review, Harper's, and the New York Times Book Review. Since 1991, she's taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. This book, When I Was a Child, I Read Books, is her fourth work of nonfiction, a collection of ten essays, six of which appeared in different forms in earlier publications. This collection of essays continues themes that Robinson has addressed earlier and elsewhere. They're centered around her admittedly polemical critique of the spirit of the times and its many modern myths. She's especially concerned that much received wisdom gets a free pass as a sort of criticism beyond criticism. Many tr treatments of human nature, for example, ignore the felt experience of life that no explanation can capture, but which have been the subject of great literature for millennia like tragedy and beauty, guilt and forgiveness, irony and truth. We have a genuine intuition of these things, about the tantalizing not-yet-knowable and the haunting never-to-be-known, and we should pay attention to that. 
Robinson has read widely in science, and as in many of her writings, she pushes back against the so-called new atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens. She's on record as describing her commitment to Calvinism, and in several essays tries to establish <coughs> the liberality and open-handedness for civil society found in Calvin and important followers like Jonathan Edwards. Contrary to common caricatures, she finds Calvin to be a source for all that's best about American liberal generosity to the vulnerable. Her most personal essay in the book is the title piece, When I Was a Child. Other intellectual fads that she finds tendentious include Darwin and Freud, the idea that mosaic monotheism is punitive in the cause of modern evil, and an ideology of market economics that threatens to devour what we hold dear, culture, education, the environment, and science. You might need a dictionary for some of this, but by now many readers have affirmed that anything written by Marilyn Robinson is worth the effort to read. The author is Marilyn Robinson. The title, a book of essays, When I Was a Child, I Read Books. For movies this week, I review a title called Urbanized. It's a documentary film from the year 2011. The independent filmmaker Gary Hustwit is best known for his design trilogy of three films, Helvetica in 2007, then in 2009 a film called Objectified, and then in 2011 this film, Urbanized. The movement of peoples to cities is well known. In another generation, perhaps 75% of the world will live in cities. Mumbai, for example, will have more people than London and New York combined. Other cities, though, like Detroit and New Orleans, have shrunk. This documentary film interviews city planners, mayors, architectural historians, public artists, and so on, from all over the world to explore the major trends in urban planning. The mayor of Bogota, for example, explains their bicycle network. A community volunteer in Detroit shows cases, showcases urban agriculture. An energy expert in Brighton talks about what they've done about energy use. From seating and parking, health and hygiene, trees and water, the height of buildings and the depth of street fronts, this is a fascinating film about the challenges and opportunities of cities at the turn of the millennium. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. The title of the film, once again, Urbanized. And for poetry this week, the second Sunday in Advent, we've posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The title of his poem is called The House of Christmas. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to Rome. In the places where she was homeless, all men are at home. 
The crazy stable close at hand with shaking timber and shifting sand grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun, and they lay on their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes and chants in honor and high surprise, but our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and foam, only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands that fashion and heads that know, but our hearts we lost how long ago. In a place no chart nor ship can show, under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are. The earth is enough and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening home shall men come, to an older place than Eden in a taller town than Rome, to the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. The House of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December the 9th, 2012, the second Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.